All right, welcome to the Icon Podcast, episode 101. Today we're continuing our series in Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20 today. You'll notice we're starting off a little bit uh, unusual in an unusual manner today because Gianna is on the road. She's in the midst of yeah, moving. I was going to say worse uh, manner. Yeah, in a worse manner. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> much, much clunkier. And uh, we've lost our professional yeah. polished beginning. Uh, but she is moving from uh, Memphis. Reggie's season's over. And so they're relocating back to Nevada and figuring out their next step as they're getting ready to welcome their first baby and, and do all of that. Um, but it's it's only worse, Jason, in the sense that it's a little bit of a rougher starting to our episode today without Gianna. But it's it's much better because of our guest today, no which we're question. excited to have um, Timothy Gombas, who is yeah. I, I think I can say a, a theologian. He might correct me on that, but he's he's definitely a, a, a biblical teacher, an author. He's written some. Awesome books, including including the drama of Ephesians, the power of weakness, and uh, just a brilliant commentary on Mark four that we've mentioned uh, several times already in our series. And so it's our pleasure to introduce uh, Timothy Gombas. And did we miss anything? Please his, fill us in anything podcast, you want us to know. The outstanding podcast as well. Thank you. Yes, yes. Faith improvised. Yeah, um, which we're yeah. big fans of. Yeah, thanks for all that. Uh, great to talk with you guys. This is great. And I just go by Tim. Otherwise, Tim. Okay. Except for you know if, when I'm in trouble. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Or my mom's talking to me. Whatever. Is is there anything uh, that we uh, I missed in the introduction that that's you want to? You nailed it. All right, there you go. Um, it only gets I, I worse. I think you're like that. me just in a little bit. I hate long introductions, right? I'm like, just my name and that I love Jesus and that's that's good enough. So yeah, uh, I, I appreciate need. that. But uh, Tim, we've been going through uh, the book of Mark and uh, examining it kind of passage by passage. And the, the thing we're trying to do in the Icon podcast is our, our motto is uh, becoming trained readers that reflect Jesus. And uh, I think you do such a great job of, of going through Mark and uh, especially the, the, what's known as the parable of the sower. And it's such a foundational parable oh, to yeah, totally. the whole rest of the book. Yeah. And so we really want to examine that today. And, and one of the premises, which uh, I think you would agree with, is that Mark is is writing his book in a lot of ways to challenge the the church of his day yeah. uh, and, and really confront them with the the challenge of following Jesus in the 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 way of the cross or however you want to um, characterize that uh, and so that's kind of the angle that we've been coming at but let, cool. let's just jump in and we're going to let you talk as as much as we can today. Um, and so let, let me ask a couple of questions at the beginning. Now, we, we use kind of a four-fold uh, paradigm here, so I'll, I'll refer to that every now and then. It's just a simple uh, paradigm of reading the Bible. And so our first principle is always reading glasses on. Let's read the text. Let's read it several times, yeah. understand just what the text is saying. 
And so as we begin that parable, uh, there, there are a couple of important clue words that are easy to miss in English translations that you've pointed out. And one of them uh, I've heard you mention is uh, in the NIV, it says Jesus was sitting by the lake. But you pointed out there's a little more behind that. Can oh, you explain totally. the, the depth of that? Yeah. Yeah. In the, uh, in the opening, <clears throat> excuse me, in the opening um, introduction, is it, is it might be, well, right at the beginning. I don't have the text in front of me, but Mark says that Jesus, you know, there, there was this massive crowd at the, the lake shore. And Jesus uh, is sort of forced back, you know, maybe getting his feet wet or something. Uh, there's no room for him to stand. So Mark says that he gets into a boat to sit on the sea. Now, that's what it says in the Greek text. And um, throughout the history of interpretation, Mark, uh, a number of scholars have sort of criticized Mark for being a clumsy storyteller, like, a you know, clumsy with his Greek. And this might be one of those instances where it's like, what is it? It doesn't make any sense to get into a boat to sit on the sea. Um, and so translations clean it up like the NIV. It's like he, you know, he gets into a boat and he's, you know, out on the sea sitting in a boat. Like that's supposed to be the emphasis. But Mark really is um, wanting to highlight that Jesus is sitting on the sea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because for ancient hearers, they would, especially Israelites, or you know, Jews of that day would completely get what Mark is saying, um, and what's interesting is that in Mark four to eight, uh, that's the section that's kind of a, a discrete, a distinct section of Mark where there's a lot of stuff happening there um, that doesn't happen before or after. And one of the distinguishing features of that section of text is everything happens in and around and on the sea. Jesus is walking on the sea. He calms this, you know, the, the, the waves and all that. And um, ancient hearers would have made the connection uh, between the sea and the forces of chaos. And that uh, the God of Israel, uh, this is celebrated throughout the Psalms. The God of Israel is uh, transcendent over the sea, like in Psalm 29 and a number yeah, of Psalms. Right. Like there's a thunderstorm over the sea and the lightning like mm -hmm. smacks the sea the thunder, like it's, it's like the God of Israel, the creator God is almost like pounding his chest, um, you know, in, in triumph over the sea because the sea in the ancient world represented all the forces of chaos that threatened to undo God's good creation. And so old Testament Israelites celebrated the fact that God is transcendent over the sea. He's, he's King over the forces that are going to try to tear his creation apart. So Jesus is behaving as the creator God. He's behaving as the God of Israel in his triumph, in his, in his transcendence over the sea. And Mark means to, to highlight that. So it's, a number, it's one of a number of ways. Like in Mark's gospel, um, Mark is not as explicit as, say, the gospel of John, where John has Jesus saying, you know, I am, I am, I am. Jesus talks about how he is God, but in Mark, it Mark the way that Mark identifies Jesus as the God of Israel as God um, is far subtler. He does it. He does it with subtleties. He doesn't have Jesus saying it. He has Jesus doing it, performing it, 
and hearers would, would be having to make the connection. Modern, I mean, we just miss that kind of stuff, especially because the NIV, which I really, I really, really like the NIV, uh, but inevitably any translation misses some things that, um, you know, ancient writers mean to, to put in. Um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was I going to say? <laughs> well, we were talking about the, the NIV, the lake, the sea. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm scatterbrained. I can't. I can't help but think of you it's know, opening, day, opening of day. You're thinking How about can the you Cubs, stay focused? I'm thinking about That's 220. Cubs, come on! They're going to trounce the Brewers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I was going to say that it's, it's especially the case because the, in the NIV and some other translations, they translate the words for sea as lake. So you know, we're just thinking of lake, and that's an insult, you know, to you guys and to me, Midwesterners. You know, we're thinking of Great Lakes. That was that was my idea of a lake. Sea of Galilee is just so dinky; it's really it's not that big. But for ancient uh, ancient people, it's like that was that was a threat. Any body of water that big is a threat. So we miss those connections, but certainly in the ancient world, that that's that's what they would have heard. That's great. And then, and then later you've got Jesus walking on the water, um, calming it. And that walking on the water, I mean, that shows up in Job, where Jesus or uh, where God is the the wave treader. I mean, he's just—it's like all these ways that Jesus shows his mastery over creation, and that raises questions. You know, the disciples are like, "Who is this that you know he can speak to the the waves and the wind?" It's like, yeah, Mark right. Mark means to have his audiences ask those kind of questions. which is which is really good and i think that's why i wanted you to bring that out because i think we can often um read those things and just skip by them oh totally and 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 miss them and there's a couple more in there and as as actually as we jump into when jesus starts to tell the parable itself first of all let, let me preface this let me say two things at the beginning one is um, Jason is joining us from an airport today. So if you hear a little background noise, <laughs> yeah, that's what yeah. it is. That's not, how committed he, he's he is. He's not being detained. He, he has not been detained, at least not yet. Um, we'll see right. about yeah, when he, keep when he an lands. Eye on me. Yeah. But um, no, one, one of the things that's interesting to me about this parable is, is Jason and I particularly come from a tradition where this this parable is really central, but it's used uh, in in sense of people who are first coming to know the Bible or first coming to know Jesus. Like this is this is the challenge: is are you going to hear the word of God? Are you going to accept it? Or you know, to this point in your life, you've been one of those bad soils. Yeah. Are you going to be a good soil? And then once we've kind of wrestled with it and accepted it, it's like okay, great, we can kind of file it away. And now we pull it out and use it for people when they're studying the Bible or coming to Christ or want to understand what the Bible is. And so I think there's a lot more to it, which we'll we'll get into here as we go. Um, But within that, in verse 3, as Jesus starts to tell the parable, in the NIV, it simply says, listen, with with a great exclamation point to really emphasize it. is this another one of those spots where maybe in the original text there's something there that we can gloss over in the English? Yeah, I, I don't know why this isn't um, 
this was missed by the translators. I'd be interested to hear their reasoning, but there, there are two verbs there uh, where, where Jesus, I mean, it's, it's almost like he's um, massively insistent. There's an extra verb for look. So he says, yeah, listen, you do, you do is look. there too. That yes. And it's, um, and then it's emphasized when he closes the parable in verse nine and uh, listening and looking or um, yeah, hearing and seeing are um, from this point on, from Mark 1 to 20, 4, 1 to 20, throughout the rest of Mark, seeing and hearing come up constantly. Um, and, and Jesus says that in, was it verses 11 and 12, when they ask him, like, what's the deal with this parable? And he said, um, um, I'm speaking in parables so that those uh, who are outside won't get it so that they'll always be seeing but never perceiving. They'll always be hearing but not understanding. And um, what's interesting is that as the narrative progresses from chapter 5 throughout all the way up to the very end, um, all the way up to uh, the Roman centurion in chapter 15, uh, verbs for seeing and hearing pop up constantly. And characters either do see and do hear or they don't. Or they see the wrong thing, or they hear the wrong thing. And um, what Mark is wanting uh, audiences to do is basically sharpen their senses, like open your eyes, get the earwax out of your ears. You need to really be listening to what um, Jesus has to say, because you very well may have signed up for this. You very well may, may be part of a church. But Mark's assumption is you don't get it. Um, you've, you've probably signed up to. Um, to something that is going to satisfy your desires. You've probably signed up to a, a church, whatever that's attractive or meets your, the needs that you think you have. And you've, but you're, you're not getting Jesus the way you need to get Jesus. Um, the, and that what's fascinating is the disciples who start off so great in chapter one, as the narrative progresses, they stop seeing and they stop hearing, they stop understanding and um, so there's a number of models throughout the rest of Mark that really um, capture that. It starts right away in chapter five, where the demon possessed man sees Jesus, runs up to him, falls down. Um, I think Jairus uh, hears about him. Uh, there's there's three characters in Mark five that see and hear Jesus. Um, and the the prayer that I think Mark wants audiences to be praying is the one in where Bartimaeus at, at the end of chapter 10 says, you know, when Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, uh, Rabbi, I want to see, I want my sight restored. And that's what, you know, churches and audiences of Mark need to be praying, you know, open our eyes so that we can actually see and get what this is all about. So can, can I ask something like, cause he, um, He'll include uh, a a a look back to uh, Isaiah six, right? The, the what you describe, look, yeah. look but don't see, and and that seems to be the the basic. Um, uh, I don't know, but it, it's a strong theme throughout Isaiah, right? Uh, yeah, uh, not being able to see, and then you have the servant who's who's also blind, but is charged to open eyes. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this, um, is parables 
meant to close eyes then it because i th- i think like um i know a lot of uh people wrestle with why he leads uh a, a parable with it, it makes it seem like that first i have to shut your eyes um yeah uh, so i i guess is a is a parable like a a speech of judgment as much as it is hope um is is the eyes being closed a guarantee or does it does it lie with the listener yeah that's a good question when jesus says this in verses 11 and 12 it's like an absolute statement like and it's the the language that he uses i think is shocking yeah for um, real which is par for the course from mark i mean mark is he means to um, rattle his audiences. This is not a gospel to make you feel better. I mean, yeah, if, exactly. if you're really paying attention to Mark, it, sh- it should be really unsettling. And um, But I think what Jesus is doing there is he's making such an absolute statement. Um, and that has to be understood with how things unfold from chapter four to chapter eight, first of all. And it has to be understood in terms of how the narrative progresses overall. So... Um, because that that hard determinism or like this is being spoken in order to, I, I guess I would say it this way. There's a sense in which Jesus kind of sets up the disciples. Like yeah. you guys are the insiders. Okay, you're, you're good. Um, but I'm, I'm speaking in parables basically to confuse everybody out there. Whoever's on the outside is going to be confused by what I say. And I think there's probably something in the disciples at that point where they're like, oh, cool cool. We're the ones who get it. Right. Right. And, um, and we get Jesus exclusively. Like he's ours. We we sort there's maybe some kind of ownership or, um, pride of being insiders. And, uh, because everybody who's outside is going to get, is going to hear things in confusing statements. And what is, what is so, sort of topsy-turvy about Mark's narrative is that from that point onward, uh, the disciples are the ones who actually grow increasingly confused by what Jesus says. And the outsider characters, like the obvious outsider characters, like people who are unclean, uh, women, uh, foreigners, they're the ones who increasingly perceive and get what Jesus is saying. Like the Syrophoenician woman. I mean, Jesus speaks to her. She's kind of the hero of Mark 4 to 8. Um, and then the woman who bursts in on the meal in chapter 14 is kind of the hero of the whole gospel. Um, these are people who are outsider characters who just like completely get what Jesus is all about and give everything. Um, so I think that what Mark is doing there is he's kind of setting up inside people who think that they're insiders and who kind of have smugness that. about that. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. He's wanting to make them feel very comfortable at the start. Like you're good. You're the ones who are good. Those people out there, they're the ones who are going to get confused. And then mm-hmm. he just completely turns the tables on them. Yeah. So it's a kind of inversion. Those who are in the inside must uh, recognize that it's very easy to be uh, moved right outside. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, their status. Overly confident. Yeah. Yeah. Their wow. complacency, confident, overconfidence. And, um, Sort of an understanding that you're, um, well, I guess I would say a failure to really misunderstand the radical character of the kingdom 
as a kingdom that includes people that are going to make you feel uncomfortable or people that, according to your social categories, are unclean or who are outside. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I grew up in a Christian environment, Christian home, and we certainly had this. I mean, it was like, we're, we're the good guys. We're, we're the, the pure yeah. ones. We're the holy ones. We're the close to God ones. I mean, those people right. out there, are the, you know, they need the gospel. Um, and Mark is kind of all about, um, you know, you, you people are the ones who don't understand the gospel. This is one of the reasons why Jesus keeps telling the disciples and everybody else who ever has is the benefit of like a healing or an exorcism in Mark, don't tell anybody about me. Keep your mouth shut. I mean, because it's like, if you people go talking about me, people are going to get the wrong idea. I mean, and, and you don't know enough to talk right now. Hmm. So keep it, keep quiet and keep listening. And then when God breaks in in Mark 9 at the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Like wow. shut up and listen. You're not listening, right? That that's so good, and and that leads me kind of into the next question, which is related to this. In that same section where Jesus begins to quote from Isaiah and so on, he he mentions the secret of the kingdom of God. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think, in my opinion, the secret or the mystery. Uh, of the kingdom, and I think, I think you can, I think you make a great case for this. It, it's, um, it's the kingdom's cross-shaped character that Jesus does not come. Um, Jesus does not come as a Messiah of power. He does not come as one who is going to, you know, be triumphant and defeat. I mean, keep in mind the number one problem for all of Jesus's audiences and even Marks is they live. They're under military occupation, and they're under the thumb of the Romans, and they're being kicked around and mistreated and uh, persecuted, and they're longing, in their minds, salvation looks like national deliverance. Salvation looks like getting the unclean Romans off of God's holy territory. And, um, I mean, this is basically um, all of the impulses that drive, all right, here we go. All of the impulses that drive make America great again are driving the disciples and the audiences of Jesus and the audiences of Mark. Um, yeah. They want they're sick of being be kicked around, yeah. and they want right. you know make Israel great again, make Jerusalem great again. Yep, yep. Um, and that looks like God reigning. It looks like the disciples and Jesus, um, you know, triumphal heroes and all that. That's what they're all expecting. And so when Jesus, there's such massive fervor for that, that when Jesus goes around, and this is part of the reason why he keeps saying, don't tell anybody about me. When, when people hear about his agenda of salvation and kingdom of God, that's what they're thinking. And that's why such massive crowds gather around Jesus early in Mark um, and why he dies alone, because that, the, the cross-shaped character of the kingdom is not something that a lot of people sign up for. They'll sign up for um, somebody bringing good news in a in a situation that's really really bad. Um, but when Jesus calls on people to take up their cross, um, or that he's um, preaching a gospel of sell everything and give and give all the money to the poor and come follow me and go to the cap, we're going to the nation's capital not to take over, not to you know take over the halls of power, we're not going to the nation's capital for an insurrection. 
we're going to the nation's capital and I'm going to die. And that is the kingdom. Like that's how the kingdom works. That's, that's the logic of the kingdom. And when Peter hears that, he's like, what are you talking about in Mark 8? And he, he rebukes Jesus. Like, this is not what we signed up for. We, we win. We win. We don't lose. <laughs> that's, how, that's how this works. And so I think you have to make a connection between what, Mar- what Peter said, how, how Peter objects to Jesus' words about the cross in Mark 8, and Jesus' response when he says, get behind me, Satan. And then mm-hmm. in Mark 4, um, when Satan snatches away the word. When Satan snatches away the word, that's not like, you know, somebody just forgets they're Christian or someone forgets that they had the gospel presented to them. Um, when, Sa- uh, when Satan corrupts the hearing of the gospel of the kingdom, it's... Um, that looks like a gospel of spectacle, a gospel of performance, a gospel that's impressive, a gospel that um, results in big crowds, big churches. Just nonstop I mean, seismic activity. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, bigness, impressiveness, um, smooth, polish. Um, I mean, basically, it's American Christianity in so many ways. But the secret is this has a cross orientation. I'm the Messiah that as I'm being lifted up on the cross, that's my ascent to my throne. And I'm going to oversee a kingdom um, that's inhabited by people who are on their crosses. So it's characterized by weakness, by self-giving love, by service, um, by crucifying our ambitions, crucifying mm. our desires. That That's what gets crucified. Um, so that mm. that's... I think that that's what the mystery of the kingdom or the secret of the kingdom is all about and why it's, it's so missed, especially in America. So, so this is just probably a really quick question, but it, again, that the, the nods to, to Isaiah, so that this, the secret of the kingdom of God is, is kind of the, the servant, the, the suffering servant, the, yeah. The arrival of God's reign is, is yeah, absolutely in the opposite direction. Totally the opposite yeah. direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, that's the true revelation of God. And and yeah, what's interesting is that um, this is not a reversal of how God behaves in the Old Testament. Like that's what so I meant many, to say. As yeah. you yeah. know, Jason, it's like there's so many misconceptions about who God is in the Old Testament. This is how this is who He's always been. He's always subverted expectations. He always chooses the younger over the older. He always, um, you know, reveals himself in unexpected ways. And so the fact that this would come in such an unexpected, unanticipated way only shows that people are looking for the wrong thing. It's not like God has changed. It's that right. It's that even yeah. even a people um, who are so absolutely shaped by the story of Scripture. I mean, first century Jews. They're so profoundly shaped by the story of Scripture a thousand times more than any of us are. Even they, you could be so familiar with Scripture and still miss it. Which should be a message for us to, you know, not not yeah. let ourselves get complacent. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. Here's what makes me nervous about this, Tim. Are, are you implying that there are Christians today uh, going to church and doing all that stuff and sharing on social media 
that might be missing the the secret of the kingdom that might be uh that that might need to look at Jesus again is is that what you're implying here Oh totally man I mean I'm I'm thinking <laughs> this about myself Sure um like yeah my uh my own personal history and family history and social location um is all the to my mind is the result of a misconstrued gospel of the kingdom so it's like you know everything oriented around success and growth and numbers and um, uh, prestige and power, all that kind of stuff. And then being socially located in like the upper middle class, it's like, as I read Mark, I mean, I honestly, this was the most personally unsettling experience I've ever had where I don't know how many times I just sat back in my chair and just thought, Oh my word. Like, right. like this, I'm, I wasn't thinking about like looking out there. I was thinking about myself, like totally. Am I how, missing it? how hard it is for the rich to be saved. I was like, the first thing I did when I read that, I was in that passage studying it. I looked up um, income uh, calculator, like where, where do I rank in my county, my state, my city, the nation, and then, then the world. And I was like, oh my word, this is me. That That was like it was pretty unsettling um, in a lot of places in Mark. So yeah, I think that's, um, I think that if you follow the logic of four, one to 20, um, you know, you got a 75% chance of falling into a category where you're not hearing it rightly. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it's not, it's, it's like, this is probably going to come to you in some corrupted way or you're going to respond in some corrupted way, or you're going to be part of a tradition that has corruptions in it. That, that should be our assumption, you know, then work from there, you know? Well, could you explain that a little bit as Jesus starts to explain the parable, he says the seed is the word, and then he describes the different paths. What, what's our takeaway from that? What, What is the word? What are these paths? Well, what's interesting to me, you, alluded to this earlier, Michael, where, I mean, I don't even, I probably have taught Mark 4, 1 to 20 before wrongly. I had always thought it was exhortations. Like you don't want to be that soil. You don't want to be that soil. You don't want to be that one. You want to be this one. But um, I didn't, I didn't notice this until I began studying it. There are no exhortations in that, Mm. in the parable or the explanation, except for listen and look. And then, um, yeah. And then when he says in verse nine, like, see what you hear, like really perceive what you're hearing like me saying. Um, and what I came away with is that four, one to 20 is not like a sermon that you should say, you know, be this kind of soil. It's actually like a preview of what's going to happen in Mark. Um, it's, it's kind of like, all right, you're going to see this happen in the rest of the narrative. So you've got the first soil where um, the the word goes out, the gospel, Jesus' preaching goes out. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. <clears throat> and it's the cross-shaped kingdom. He's calling people to join him on, on the way to the cross. And the first seed, you know, the, the word lands in a place and Satan snatches it away. Um, and I think that that shows up with Peter in Mark 8. That, that happened in Mark with Peter. Um, so Peter can actually be somebody who is very committed. Um, 
I mean, he gives up everything. He drops his livelihood and follows Jesus. And so it's 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 possible to be a disciple, have signed up to the program, and misunderstood what it's all about. Um, and that one has loads of political implications because Jesus, he's giving a political vision there in Mark 8, where he's going as a political figure. Um, the ruler of the kingdom of God is a political reality. And his politics is the politics of the cross. And Peter's politics is the politics of power, of prestige, of dominance. We got to win. And um, so I think that that's what's going on with that first soil. The second soil is, um, is, is, uh, that's, is that not the one where, um, it's the Rocky lands on Rocky places and immediately it springs up. That happens with, um, let's see, what are, what are, it immediately springs up, but yet, what is it when, um, trouble, man, I'm having trouble here. Here, Let let, let me read it here real quick. It says, uh. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Yeah. So when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, and that's exactly what happens to the disciples uh, in Gethsemane. Um, They've joined up. I mean, Jesus is there to be arrested and he's going to be going to the cross. And when that all comes due, they take off. Um, They're not interested. So I think that that is, um, I mean, that's a mirror being held up to all of us as audience members of Mark. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. Can I ask, like, is this, so it's almost like this parable is like an interpretive key for the, the, Yes, the the gospel itself. Like, yep, l- less about a, a a way of gauging um, yourself or identifying with one of the soils, but but it's kind of like what would you call it? Not an overture, like an overture, I guess, or like a yeah an introduction to how yeah. Things someone open said, up. I someone said it's kind of like the table of contents to Mark. Yeah, okay. Like, this is what you're yeah. going to see coming up. Pay wow. attention to this. And it, it is really helpful. It, it is, um, you know, in some sense, uh, an exhortation to audiences, but the exhortation is not, the exhortation is look at these examples. What did, where, where did Peter get it wrong? What, where did he go wrong? What did he say wrong? What's inside of Peter? And then when the disciples are there in Gethsemane and Peter, and they're, they're all saying this, you know, we'll never abandon you. Jesus we will be there with you to the end. Um, when they all take off, um, you know, what should they have done? What, what should have been done differently? Um, and then the, the third soil is the one where um, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word so that it is unfruitful, which is so... Um, that's so wild. I had always envisioned that. I never read this carefully enough. I had always envisioned, um, you know, like an individual or even a church, like on the right path. And then these things distract and like kind of pull you away from the church or something like that. But what Jesus says is that actually, no, this is a church community gathered around the word of the cross, the mystery of the kingdom. 
and um, the worries of the age. Actually, it's like it's not. It's sort of like um, you know the the concerns of of the world system, um, and the desire, or the deceitfulness of riches, and then the desires for other things. Those actually enter in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So it's not like they pull people away from the church. They actually you still have a church, but you just have a church with other priorities or you have churches, but you have churches with other priorities. Um, and that happens in, let's say Mark nine, where you've got that. Um, well, actually in Mark eight, the young, the young man too. Okay. Yeah. Mark. Eight, yeah. No, right. No, you, exactly. You've got the, that's, that's right. That's one instance, but in Mark eight to 10, those three chapters, are when Jesus is, um, uh, it's later on in 8 to the end of 10, when Jesus three times predicts, uh, predicts his death. And the three times the disciples respond really badly to what he says. Um, the first time Peter rebukes him for that. Uh, the second time the disciples get into an argument about who's the greatest. Uh, and then the third time they, um, they, they, uh, they sort of trick, they don't really trick Jesus, but they say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever you ask, whatever we ask right, of you. Right. And John and, um, who is it? Two of the disciples. John, want, and J- John, John and James. Yeah. John and James. Let, let they us want, sit, sit with you, be enthroned yes, with you, whatever. They yeah. want positions of prestige. So it's yeah. like they have signed up to what Jesus is all about, but other concerns have entered in. And they have they're they're still with Jesus, but they're trying to sort of take the movement in another direction. Like I, I want to use this for oh. my benefit. I want to I want to make the kingdom the means of my personal brand. You know, my prestige, my my quest for power. So, um, I mean, man, do we see that in the American church in a variety of instances and in loads of instances where it's like inevitably American ideologies affect us. I mean, we want growth. We want bigness. We want to be part of something that is seen to matter. And because we feel like that's going to rub off on us and that's going to mean something for, for me, I want to matter. Um, so, and, and then of course the deceitfulness of riches. And I think that that's actually, um, um, a pregnant sort of a notion. It's not just like we want money rather than Jesus, but all the ways that money can deceive us. Uh, you know, we can, we can actually further God's kingdom, the more money that we have or. Yeah, um, what a confrontation to take this seriously. I, I mean, as a minister, it's just a, it's a real. Um, <laughs> it's really uh, threatening it's a, it's a actually. Real, I think mostly for yeah. people who are in ministry because so many of our contemporary models have turned ministry into a career. Yeah, and, um, Totally. I think that for pastors, um, for pa- for pastors who get a paycheck from the church, this is one of the most, I think, one of the most under-examined and unexamined dynamics. The way that money and the dynamics of capitalism have sort of moved into our churches and corrupted things. Um, I'm not saying that that that's that churches should not support pastors. Um, but I, I wonder how many pastors wrestle with the reality that, like, I my church needs to hear this. I'm just not going to say that. 
If I say that to yep, my church, yep. I'll get fired. Or, you know, You're I dead. know that the big giver mm-hmm. or the, the the handful of big givers don't want to hear talk about whatever race or, um, you know, getting involved in in social justice in our community. They're they're going to bristle at that, and I can't have that. I can't do that. And there are things that um, pastors will say in order to keep everybody happy, and things that they won't say in order to keep everybody happy. So, I mean, money is a corrupting dynamic. Um, my best friend and I have had loads of conversations about um, bivocational ministry because that that's a mode of ministry that is hard, but it frees from the shackles of money. And um, he, right. he would say the, the things that he could say in his church, he was so liberated um, <laughs> to, to actually love his people and, and to really care for them because he was doing it. Out of love. In fact, this is crazy. I just was talking to uh, someone on Sunday. Um, they had a rough patch in their church, and um, I thought they handled what happened with their pastor really, really well. And they invited him to continue as part of a part of the community in an unpaid um, capacity, and wanted to be as inclusive as possible. And invited him to do a bunch of stuff. And he said, "What do you mean? I'm like do it for free?" <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Holy Moses! That's like, <laughs> I was like, dude, you just gave away the game. Like, okay, you just—that's that, re- that's pretty revelatory. But I think that that <laughs> would be—that would be like, I think that that's him just being unintentionally really honest. But and then what's interesting about the fourth soil is that that is all the characters from Mark five onward that you don't expect that that um, first century audiences wouldn't expect and that. Um, that we don't expect the, the demon possessed man, Jairus, the woman that touches his garment, the Syrophoenician woman, um, Bartimaeus, and then the uh, you know the ultimate one is the woman in chapter fourteen. But then there's the Roman centurion That's at the very end, right. and he's like, and it's so interesting what Mark says again, calling on the uh, the seeing and hearing. Um, it's so cool because the, the crucifixion scene, there's like a like an avalanche of seeing and hearing vocabulary right in there. And then right after that, um, Mark says about the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion seeing how he died said. So it's like the Roman centurion perceives something and he perceives the manner in which Jesus died. Um he says, truly, this man was the son of God. So like he, uh, for, for Mark's audiences, his, his Jewish audiences, the Roman centurion is like the ultimate outsider character. He's, he's part of the oppressive, he's part of the system of oppression. And he identifies uh, Jesus as the son of God, makes the climactic confession. So that it's the outsider characters who are the ones that bear fruit, which I think, again, is a rebuke to audiences that, Church audiences that are going to hear Mark's gospel, um, don't don't assume you get it. Don't assume that you are the obvious insiders. Um, the characters that you need to identify yourself with are whoever you have under the category those people. Like mm. like we're the those people. That's us. We're the outsiders. We're the the unclean. We're the woman with the twelve year you know bleeding issue. We're the Syrophoenician woman, the demon possessed daughter. I mean, we want to be those characters so that we can be the characters who get Jesus. So if we're situated as insiders, hey, that's that's life. That's where 
whatever, our social location, I can't be blamed for that. Um, but my responsibility is as much as possible to identify myself with characters that in my day, um, that polite middle-class culture despises or polite middle-class church culture despises. Like I, I have to be the, the, those people relative to that reality. That's so good. And do you, let let me ask this and back up just a little bit, because I I love what you're bringing out here about outsiders and insiders and, and challenging ourselves. And in that soil among the thorns, Jesus talks about the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of, of riches and the desire for other things that come and choke out the word. Is there a challenge in there, you know, cause it's easy. I, I, I could see myself even in the past, like going, well, yeah, that's mega churches and <clears throat> you know, all of those things, you know, they should, they should really think about this. But is there even a challenge in there for, and I think you alluded this a little bit, for those of us who were born into maybe a privileged status in our society, whether it be uh, wealth or ethnicity or race or country or where we live, that that we can get really comfortable and start to want to defend that uh, rather than, you know, embrace this cross-shaped word. Is there a challenge in there for, you know, just us normal folks who are like, hey, I'm just a good person living my life and going to church and, and, you know, that as well? Because I I find a challenge in there. So I just want to hear if you see a challenge in that as well. Oh, totally. I find it tremendously challenging. Like when I think about the worries of this age or the worries of, um, yeah, so I, what I want to ask myself is, um, like, what are what are the worries of this age or of this world or of this life? However, we want to express that. Um, what are the deceitfulness of riches? Like, how does all that work on me and my church and, and our corporate imagination? Um, so, I've got concerns for self preservation. Um, I'm 50 years old. I'm thinking about, you know, retirement. What does that look like? How do, like one of the worries of this world is how do we guarantee comfort for the future? That's, I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. that's a massive concern that all of us have. How do I guarantee safety for the future? Um, how do I ensure income is coming in? I mean, how do I ensure safety, um, for my house and family and all that kind of stuff? Um, those are those are primal and fundamental concerns and desires. Um, now, one of the ways that we pacify those is largely with illusions. Um, and so, what I've tried to challenge myself with is what what can I be doing in my life that that pushes me a little bit past what I'm comfortable with. So, like, what if I really pay attention? to what's going on around me. Um, and there is an opportunity for generosity and I have the resources or the money. Um, in what way could I do something that it would be uncomfortable and might kind of poke at that desire for safety and security for the future. So, um, I've been very attentive to those kind of opportunities and we have one coming up here where we were having to have some uncomfortable conversations about maybe stretching ourselves. Um, and thoughts about safety and security. 
we have, so we have three grown children who are now out of the house. So we have a sort of a modest size house, but we've got three empty bedrooms. And um, so we're having conversations about um, with that resource, what can we be doing um, with people in our local community that have various needs? Um, I think that that's, and I think churches can have those kinds of conversations. So, you know, I'm part of a privileged, um, almost entirely white church. Certainly it's, it's white space, even if there are some people of color in the, in the community. Um, we're having these discussions right now about race and how we can be challenging ourselves as a community um, to somehow be involved locally um, with efforts at uh, seeing God's justice um, bear fruit. Um, the funny thing to me is that is that once you start kind of thinking about these sorts of things and and um, probing where you're looking for safety and security, because that's what the cross is going after. Like the cross is a call to give up safety. I mean, it's death, like de- come and die and security and give up all guarantees for the future. Once you start thinking along those lines and then just kind of paying attention, there's a, there's a lot of possibility um, to be involved locally to kind of push yourself past what, what you think you can handle um, to, yeah, just over two years. Uh, yeah. Two and a half years ago, I started volunteer teaching in our local County jail. Um, I mean, man, I am, I thought I was comfortable with sort of groups of others in our culture. Um, I felt I'm not comfortable in a jail. I'll just say that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has been a refreshing and enlivening experience for me. Um, yeah. And I just think we can identify these things. How does money lie to us in, in the varieties of ways? Um, and what are, what are the desires for other things? Like, what is it that we want to be as a church that is, is not quite a community shaped thoroughly by the cross? Like, what do we want? What are the ways that we desire prestige as a church? What are the ways that we desire power, um, influence? Yeah. What, what are the ways that we uh, desire to matter locally? You know, uh, all the ways that Christians can talk about wanting to have impact or influence. Um, if we're called to die and give up all of that, what would that look like locally um, for the blessing of um, others around us? I mean, there, what's interesting in Mark is there are two practices that Jesus calls the, the disciples and the church to do, and that is a service to the needy and hospitality to the marginalized. So if we look around our local communities, where, where can we serve where we're not going to be noticed? Um, and where can we be a hospitable community to those that are, are broken, are excluded, are forgotten? Um, the opportunities are endless. I think that we have had our imaginations distorted, and we've also chosen not to see all of that. Um, because we, we want, we want other stuff. The desires for other things have, that has all entered in and it's done its work. And so this, I think the, our imaginations need renovation. Um, and then, and then we need the courage to then sort of take up cross oriented action. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's so deceptive. It makes me think of, and and I don't say this from a judgmental standpoint at all, because I'm I can be just as guilty in different ways. But I was watching a um, a, a new documentary show last night on Hillsong, the church in Australia that moved to New York and all this, and the 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 pastor of that church started with a paper called "What I See." And the first line is, we will be a church of influence. And he goes on to say, we will be so big and so powerful that we can't be ignored. And, you know, I see that deception that can sneak in so easily. And one of the things I, I want to ask you about is we, we've talked about Mark being a, you know, uh, the gospel Mark depicting kind of this cosmic invasion. Jesus is invading the territory of the powers and the present age and uh, all, all of that sort of thing. Um, and, and this conflict going mm-hmm. on, do you, what part of that do you see in, in the parable here? Uh, do you see a, a conflict of the power specifically in, in this parable? Cause I think that's such an under uh, noticed, underappreciated aspect of the new Testament that, the, the powers at work in culture and in the way we think and all that sort of thing, mm. and even can come into the church and the church can operate as, uh, you know, under the, the characteristics of the powers. So mm. is there, is there anything that you see here that would, uh, that you would describe in that realm? Yeah. Well, it seems to me that what we see is um, the result of, the distorting and corrupting work of the powers of darkness. So it's like when the gospel of the kingdom and the, and the mystery of the kingdom, which is that the kingdom has a cross-shaped Messiah and is a cross-shaped um, um, reign inhabited by cross-shaped people, um, that that runs absolutely counter to all the deceptions and corruptions and distortions of life fostered by the powers. So the powers seduce us all um, to want power and prestige. And Peter, Peter falls prey to that. And that's what it looks like when the, when, when Satan snatches away the word, Um, we get, we get a very attractive gospel, a very attractive kingdom that appeals to all of our desires. Um, and then the powers have also fostered in us all, and, has, and the powers have seduced us all to give into our impulses for self-protection, self-preservation. I mean, what matters at the end of the day is that I'm okay. And if there are limited resources, I'm grabbing them because there might not be enough you know, for, for tomorrow for me. I don't care if you don't have any. Um, and that's that self-preservation impulse um, that the disciples gave into. So when, when, when Jesus is talking about, um, when trouble or persecution break out because of the word, they fall away. So it's like, that's one of the things that the powers seduce in us, um, that seduce us to, to develop that, that impulse of self-preservation, self-protection, me first. Um, and then, um, yeah, the, the worries of this age, those have all been constructed by the powers. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the worries that press in on us for 
security, certainty, um, clear boundaries of a community, all that kind of stuff is all the corruptions of the powers. So I think what we see is not the powers themselves, but their corrupting influence that prevents us from actually hearing the cross-shaped word and then living it in a persevering way. Like at some point, we're just going to be tempted to check out. Like this is just too hard. Um, mm. So yeah, I think how, how the powers show up in our lived impulses, I think uh, what we're seeing. That's so great. I, yeah, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I know it's uh, it's opening day of baseball as we record yeah, this, man. so we definitely don't want you to be miss a national <laughs> holiday. High yeah, holiday. yeah, and and I hope that uh, you know I hope the Cubbies win today because I think you care more about this game <laughs> than I do. So, oh yeah. Uh, I, I will uh, I will go ahead and, and send that up and, and hope they win. But thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank it was you. a blast. Thanks, Jason. No Thanks, question. Michael. This was really great. Yes. Thanks for having me yeah. on. It's been great. And where can people find you online if they want to find you? Well, I do a, a podcast called Faith Improvised, and uh, that's also the title of uh, my blog that I've not written on for about two years, but it sort of <laughs> died. I kind of started – I transitioned to podcasting, which sort of is – a little bit easier to do than blogging because there's no editing necessary. But yeah, Faith Improvised and I don't know, Twitter and Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, whatever. And, and Mostly we, pictures of my cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, love you. Um, cats, you, you know, hey, if you're a cat person. I, I was God. not. I was not. I <laughs> okay. I'm a dog person, but we my wife uh, wanted to get these two cats, and now they've stolen my heart. I have to admit. All right, all right. Well, we uh, hi- highly recommend, encourage people yeah, to check out Faith Improvised. This is such a gift, man. For real. Oh, that's really kind of you. Yeah, I, I've had a blast. Yeah. This is great. And uh, please, uh, Jason's daughter is coming. Yes, yeah, my my, my little girl just showed up. That's awesome. I toy, love it. So you can say hi. You want to say hi? That is Hi, so Hannah. great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and please go check out, um, you know, go online and look up books by Timothy Gombas. And if you see his name on it, just buy it. Trust me. Agreed. It, it'll be worth it. And, yeah. and I think, I, like think I have listened to you enough to know that you would want to say, uh, or us to say to go buy it at an independent bookstore. That's right. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Don't support the beast. Is, is right. Amazon an independent bookstore? <laughs> <laughs> Independently savaging our planet. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's powers, great. One of the powers. One yeah, the that's powers. right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, Tim, again, thank you so much for joining us and enjoy the rest of your cool. day. All right. Thanks, thanks guys. Man. Take care. All right. No, thanks. thanks.